0: Even among this unprecedented change, how would you like to be able to fire up and fine-tune your employee culture? Well, we're going to be talking with culture guru Stan Slap here on the latest edition of the Blanchard Leader Chat Podcast starting right now.
1: Welcome to the Blanchard Leader Chat Podcast. Hi, this is Ken Blanchard. We need a new leadership model in business today, one that values both people and results, where leaders see their role as serving instead of being served. In this podcast, my friend and colleague, Chad Gordon, interviews experts who help us explore different aspects of leadership. I know you'll be encouraged and inspired by what you hear and you'll walk away with ideas and insights that will help you be the type of leaders others want to follow. Ready to get started? I'll be back at the end of the interview where I'll share what I've learned and how I'll be putting it into action. Now, enjoy this installment of the Blanchard Leader Chat Podcast.
0: We're joined now by New York Times best-selling author of his most recent book, Under the Hood, Fire Up and Fine-Tune Your Employee Culture. His other book, I love this title, Bury My Heart at Conference Room B. Stan Slap, welcome to the Blanchard Leader Chat Podcast. I'm thrilled to be here, Chad. It's so good to have you here, and, and I just, I've been so looking forward to bringing you to our listeners, our dedicated listeners, because I think what you share and what you travel the world speaking to and teaching and training and and in, inciting in, in all the knowledge around culture and, and all the nuances of that, when you think about culture, when you think about culture and organization, let's just start from that base point. How do you define culture?
2: Well, one of the ways I define culture is the most overused yet typically least understood concept in business. Uh, Culture was was Merriam-Webster's word of the year a few years ago. And that means according to the most popular dictionary in the entire English language, culture was the most newly searched for word in the entire English language. Now, in my company, because maximizing the commitment of cultures is all we do, we like to say if banana had made word of the year instead By now, companies would understand what a banana is and recognize it's not going to peel (laughs) itself just to feed you. So, first of all, it's, it's typically not understood. And so what a culture is, a culture is created whenever a group of people share the same basic living circumstances. And so band together to share beliefs about the rules of survival and emotional prosperity. And that's true whether you would be in the in the jungle saying, how do we survive all living in the same jungle, in the same tribe, with the same chief, and then knowing we're going to be okay, how do we get rewarded emotionally and avoid punishment? And that's just as true in the enterprise. How do we survive working in this industry, in this company, on this team, for this manager? And then knowing how we're going to be, that we're going to be okay, how do we get rewarded emotionally and avoid punishment? The key is that what a culture believes about the way things are around here, that's just the currency of the culture. A culture is the self-protective organism that obsessively collects that information, validates it, and shares it privately amongst itself. Basically, a culture is the construct for caring and sharing by those united through common circumstance or cause. So to just bottom line this for you, Chad, because we could talk all day about this. Uh, If you want to look at an employee culture, an employee culture is an independent organism living right inside the enterprise with its own purpose and all the power to make or break any management plan and any manager. Its purpose is to protect itself, not the company, not its manager. It will do those things, but only if it aligns protecting itself with protecting the company.
0: So much that we can talk about, and we are going to talk about, you know, how do you flourish uh, culturally in a virtual world? We can talk about, you know, um, how does a culture affected by, you know, things like, I don't know, COVID-19 pandemic, you know, we can talk about the the ways that those are impacted, but um, let's talk about what you call your, your, your deadly sins of cultural commitment. Cause I think these are so important. And when I always think about the questions I ask, all the fantastic guests we have here on the leader chat podcast, you know, I think about it from their eyes and their lens. And there's so many people that are either moving into leadership roles or they're trying to fine tune their leadership spears. And so when a leader doesn't respect the culture, I mean, that can be, that can be deadly.
2: Yeah, it, it, it is. The cultural habits way with you. Um, uh, but on the on the upside of that is if you get the culture's commitment, uh, any anything that you want to get done in the business, if you if your culture wants it to happen, it's going to happen. If it doesn't want it to happen, nothing's going to happen. And I'm asked all the time, if, if what's the definition of a great culture? I think people expect me to say, well, a great culture is a happy culture. Well, yes, you do not want your culture actively unhappy, but a great culture is a committed culture. Chad and the commitment of your culture can be measured with any metric you use to manage the business. So this understanding uh, on the part of managers about that what a culture is and that its commitment is measurable. This is not soft stuff. This is the stuff of hardcore business results is critical. I would also, you know, that managers are, are their own culture. There's Any company has three cultures. And those three cultures will decide the success of the company. You have your manager culture because the rules of survival and emotional prosperity are different for managers. And the sources of information are different for managers than they are for employees. Then you have your employee culture. You also have a customer culture because customers have in common a dependent relationship with the company. So you have all these three cultures. But you're right. The ability of somebody in a management position, call them leader or not, To understand and influence their culture is critical. I mean, if your job involves uh, uh, creating results and you have to achieve those results through others and those others happen to work for you, understanding the true motivations of an employee culture is
0: the most critical information you will ever have. Reminds me of a conversation we had before, and you were really clear about leadership over management. And so culture really can't be linked to a KPI in a lot of different ways. It can't be managed. It really has to come from leadership. And this is where, where managers really have to, 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 to become leaders and become the people, whether that's inspirational or just guiding the, 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 the force. How do you see that in terms of the people that are on the, on the front lines? How can they nurture and, and, and help move the culture in a positive way? Um, how can they be better leaders? Yes. You,
2: I mean, you have to step up and be a leader. And there's a difference between management and leadership. Management controls performance in people. It's a matter of monitoring, analyzing, and directing behavior. And it controls performance by impacting skill. Leadership, which doesn't control anybody's performance. So if that's your issue, don't bother being a leader, just be a manager. Leadership creates performance. It's a matter of inspiring and modeling and reinforcing. And the reason that that leadership is is generally more important than management is how can you control what you haven't first created? And if you if you're listening to this podcast and you manage people, those people are basically already skilled. That's how they got their job. They'd done the job before someplace else. they'd gone to school to learn how to do the job, whatever. By the time that they're working for you, they're fundamentally skilled. That's why they got the job. That's why they have the job. So the relative quality of their performance improvement is not going to come from increasing their skill. It's going to come from increasing their willingness to use that skill to the best of their abilities, regardless of whether you're hovering over them like some supervisory gargoyle. It's on their own. Do I want to do the best job I can do? And- If you are trying to get improved performance from already skilled people by hammering the skill button, that's a dead button. You have to go to the leadership button, which creates willingness. So leadership creates skill. Leadership creates willingness. If you're dealing with skilled people, you need to cause them to be willing to use the skill they already have. And that is why leadership generally comes before management.
0: This next question I want to ask you, it, it, it is one of those deadly sins you talk about how employee culture resists change. And I just want to do this from the frame of where we are. We're recording this in May of 2021. Everybody that's listening to this knows exactly what's going on in the world. And I, I'm so lucky that I get to work with organizations across the globe. And there's not one organization whose culture wasn't drastically and incredibly changed over the course of the last you know 12 to 14 months. Um, how have you seen that in terms of, uh, of, of the, the way the culture has been affected by what is going on um, where organizations have had to make very drastic changes um, and have tried to, to, to impact the culture in a way, people still resist that even though jobs are at stake. People still resist that even though the world has changed. What, have, what has been your learning about the way people and change intermesh in the face of, of COVID-19 and in and, and, and the workplace?
2: Well, let's unpack that,
0: that question a bit. First of all,
2: just about a culture and change, period. That's, that's the common mythology that a culture hates change. Um, a culture really doesn't hate change. If, if, if you look at what, what is a culture concerned about, it's obsessed with its survival. That's why it comes to, into existence, to protect itself in what it perceives as an uncertain environment. And uh, where it cannot reliably control or anticipate its environment. And uh, what does any change do? Any organizational and strategic change, strategic change, it screws with the known rules of survival and emotional prosperity. So I used to know my job. Now you're changing my job. I have to relearn, re-earn my competence. Unsafe. I, I used, to, I used to have relationships. Uh, I knew people and they knew me. And now we're being reorged. I don't have those dependable relationships anymore. Unsafe. I used to know what my bonus meant when I got it. And more importantly, from a cultural perspective, what it meant if I didn't get it. Now we have some new groovy comp program and the ceiling is higher, but I don't know what it means. Unsafe. A culture is not anti-change, anti-management, anti-revenue, but it is most definitely anti-unsafe. And so it's not that a culture hates change. It hates the loss of the known that change represents, the known rules of survival and emotional prosperity. Now, from the C-suite level, Chad, I'm sure you've been in these and many of your listeners may be in these situations. I have been in countless executive conference rooms with the senior teams of very large companies, and I've watched a bunch of senior managers sit around a room and say, well, we don't have a problem with change. Must be why why we're senior management. <laughs> well, let's face it. Change is a whole lot easier to deal with if you invented the damn change yourself. And if that change is not going to happen until you're ready for it to happen. And if you have a bunch of resources to throw at the change to make it happen. But by the time change hits the employee culture, it's live, Jack. Your culture is <laughs> expected to hear about it, understand it, embrace it. Translate into action all in about the same 60 seconds. The C-suite clock has started on this change long before the culture's clock gets started. And so to the culture, any change, even good logical change, is interpreted as an uncomfortable reminder of how little control it has over its work life. And so the culture, understandably, tips into, into neurosis. Like, we didn't see this change coming. Who knows what else is going to change? Maybe anything, maybe everything. And it it just, it, it neurotically believes that anything could change here at any time. Now, your culture has got all the emotional and intellectual wherewithal to deal with any change unless they think that anything and everything could change. And when it hits that neurotic state, which is a constant state in many companies from the culture, that anything could change here at any time. It doesn't know how many fronts to open uh, to open to fight against. You don't know where the change is coming from, so it just attaches. Bottom line: I want to be prescriptive here to answer your question. The first thing to do is return perspective to your culture, because if it doesn't think that everything is going to change, it can easily focus on what is changing. And the way to do that—it's going to sound simple—but it's the one thing that companies obsessed with change without understanding cultural impact, consistently fail to do. When you are explaining what is changing to your culture, you must take the time to explain what isn't changing. If you say to your culture, okay, this is new. We're not doing that anymore. We're going to do this instead. We're doing it. That's fine. You know, PowerPoint slide with five bullet points. That's fine. Follow with 50 PowerPoint slides that say, but this is who we've always been, this is who we still are, and this is who we will always be. The big things, the small things, the the good things, the frustrating things. Exaggerate that message so your culture understands, whoa, 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 okay, that's right. Most of what we know and have figured out how to to navigate in remains the same, and it's the one mistake that – that companies make. So it's pejorative, unfairly pejorative to say that a culture is change resistant. That's not what's going on with a culture.
0: I do I do think I asked you like a seven part question there and you're you a did. master you of, of hitting on all the points And I appreciate and even touched on part of my next question, which is the value of communication and how um, the culture needs to be communicated with, needs to be able to, to trust leadership, needs to be able to understand where these things are coming from. And so when you advise um, all the people you do in the C-suites, you know, how can you be better communicators so that it does enhance trust? Do it, do it does move the culture forward so it does move the ball forward?
2: Well, I'd say, first of all, is recognize that a culture will never trust you as much as it trusts itself. I mean, that's just uh, understandably the case. So if you're going to really communicate effectively to a culture, the best thing you can do is get the culture to talk to itself on your behalf. What you want to be able to do is write the script the culture reads to itself when it's trying to figure out, should we pay attention to this? Is this, is this important safety information for us? And, the, and a culture communicates with legends, Chad. Legends are stories that convey information. They're proof points about the linkage, if it's a good legend or lack of linkage, if it's a bad one, between what management says and what management does. And so the way to deliberately create a cultural legend is first, you have to be emphatic about what's most important to you, even dramatic about what's most important to you, and then do something provocative to prove that you mean it. And the culture will take, okay, we heard this, maybe we listened to it, maybe we didn't, but then you did this and we recognize that there's linkage. And that is safety information that it will communicate to itself. Um, uh, you, you want to be safe here? Do this. Because when Mandarin says this, they do this. And so it's the first thing to do is set context. Context is essential with a culture. It has to understand why things are happening. And you really have to do that again, emphatically and dramatically, and then look for opportunities to prove that you mean it. And those opportunities will surely come. So, the best way to communicate to a culture is to get the culture to communicate to itself for you. Context is everything.
0: Why do you think, even in the best organizations, why do you think that whenever the the, the strategy shifts and and the changes, the big management ideas that are that are pushed out um, to the people. Why, why do you think, why have you found that, that employees, and I can just speak from my perspective that sometimes people think, I don't think I have the whole story here. I think, I think there's something else behind all of this. Why do you think that, that people resisted in such a big way?
2: Yeah, that's right. When, when we, uh, one of the things we do for companies is a true cultural analytic, not an engagement survey, a true cultural analytic. You get that close society to open up and talk to you like it really talks to itself. And, and to explain its hesitation. And one, one, of, one of the things that, that we, we asked a culture to, to give us a strength of preference response to, to a number of questions that it would ordinarily never get asked, the questions it really wants that, to be asked. And one of those questions is, rate this. Anything could change here at any time. We're trying to see if the culture's tipped into that neurosis state. Another is, um, rate this one. Um, we are told the whole truth. And very often, we'll get a very low response on both those things, and the company will be astounded. What are you talking about? That we First of all, we did the big kickoff, and then we did the regional road shows, and then we had our own internet site, company site, and then we explained the strategy again. And the PowerPoint deck is downloadable, and it's on your screensaver. And it's on your mouse pad. Look at your T-shirt. The strategy's <laughs> on your T-shirt. What do you mean we didn't tell you? Well, the problem is that the culture perceives everything is changing. And if you are saying to the culture, listen, here's a new plan, and the culture thinks that plan's going to change, it assumes that management knew the plan was going to change. Other, I mean, but Manchin doesn't say that. Manchin just says, here you go. Here's a new plan. So the culture, understandably, says... Uh, well, if you knew it was going to change and you didn't say something, you're not telling us the whole truth. And everything is everything to a culture. It all gets poured into one belief system. And that's why the culture says, eh, you know, you're know, you just not telling us the whole truth. I mean, it, it makes perfect sense from a cultural standpoint.
0: We talked about this in bits and pieces during the conversation so far, but I think it's just so timely right now when you think about, you know, leading your culture during a crisis. You know, introducing you know new ideas and new new marching orders, new strategies during a crisis. And we are very much still in the midst of a of a crisis. We're not sure quite how the workforce is going to look um, when all of this shakes out. When it shakes out. So, what have you learned? I mean, you've had your your ear to the ground and you've been out working with organizations. You haven't taken a break during COVID. What have you learned about managing a culture and and leading a culture during? You know this unique time that we are living in right now. This is my break.
2: This half hour talking to you is my whole break for the year. So, <laughs> um, uh, so yeah. Here's the thing, and and here's here's my number one recommendation in terms of dealing with a culture for for anybody uh, listening to this podcast. The biggest problem when it comes to your culture's commitment isn't here yet, but it's coming. It's coming fast. Now, now, even though we feel we've been living with this pandemic for a long time, we're still very possibly just at the beginning of this roller coaster ride and, and, and it's, its rolling impact on, on lives and livelihoods and companies and economies. Um, so there's going to be a point when the newness of this crisis wears away. And what's going to replace it is this deep emotional exhaustion, this weariness, kind of a numbness in the culture caused by instability that's become chronic and human connection that's become electronic and uncontrollable circumstances that are writing a new story of lives and careers. Now, a culture, because it's obsessed with its survival, prizes surety of its world and this is real. There is very little surety about a lot of things. And so you don't want that deep exhaustion to infiltrate your culture. When Because the way that will translate is your culture will begin to blame external circumstances for internal performance. And then all aggressive, innovative responses depart, and you get a culture that's marked by victimization, apathy, and detachment. That is so insidious that even after the crisis passes, it's tough to get it out of a culture. So, you need to get ahead of it. Here's the key to getting ahead of it. It is difficult for the human brain to sustain opposing emotions. Like, you can be happy, or you can be sad, and you can veer wildly between the two, but the the brain can't say, well, this is it. This is something. This is the world, Then this is the world. It, it really needs to center on one belief system at a time. So likewise, the human organism that's a culture can't maintain a regular state of both exhaustion and exuberance, paralysis and productivity, helplessness and hope. So the antidote to to getting ahead of the biggest problem affecting your culture's commitment is recognizing you had problems just before the pandemic. Now there's a whole new host of problems. Your culture has got to be able to translate problems into energy. So what has to happen is that the culture has to look at at taking on problems as a perk, not as a punishment, in the belief that the pursuit of solutions confirms its ingenuity, its unity, its tenacity, its exclusivity. So, So the culture basically has to love taking on problems, love trying to solve problems because that's who it is. It it can solve problems, and in a real problem solving culture, Chad, the culture doesn't even have to solve the problems. It gets high on flinging itself at the problem, mm-hmm. like okay, you you know you got us once that didn't okay two, okay thirty three times, but thirty four, and that's what you need to do. You're not going to get rid of the problems. You're going to have to say to to the culture, tough times, tougher team. We're the kind of company that, yeah, and you've got to create a problem-solving culture that loves to solve problems because then the problems presented by the pandemic don't exhaust the culture, it energizes the culture.
0: Yeah, you said that hopelessness and hope, I I can think of of days where I felt that in the same morning, you know, and because of the relationships and the connections, the you know, the things that I am excited to do while I'm here at Blanchard have, have driven me forward during some of those really rough sure. times. And so, sure. you know, Stan, we've got time for just a, a couple more questions. And and I wanted to just just pose this question to you for all of our listeners that are listening today. If you had just one thing that you wanted to impart to them, one thing that you wanted to for them to hear from you, what would that be from our conversation today? <sighs>
2: Well, I mean, let's let's take it from
0: from the uncertainty that that you
2: were just uh, you were just addressing, uh, because I mean, this is this is where we're at, and I, I think given the uncertainty in today's world, the only accurate prediction that anyone can make at this crisis point is that anyone making a prediction stands a good chance of one day being seen as a complete moron. But having said that, there are two things that we know for certain, Chad. The first is that these tough times won't last forever. The second is that the story of how you stood up to them will. You can be living with that story for a long time. It's time to start writing it so that it ends the way you want it to. And if you consider how, how does a human being justify the gift of life? Well, you take care of those who depend on you. You give back for your success. You practice kindness and respect. You strive to make the world both a better place and not a worse one. Why should it be any different in justifying the life of an enterprise? To be trusted, to care about what matters most. Let this be the defining grace of your company. And what matters most now is your humanity, your empathy, your compassion, your unbiased unity. And, you know, This crisis is going to pass, but for a long, long time, any company and any manager in any company is going to have to answer a question. They're going to have to answer that question to their company, to their culture, to their customers, to their children, to their conscience. Who were you when? everything inside you and around you is finally tested. What you do now will be remembered. Who you are now will be remembered much longer. And so bottom line, it's there's a number of strategies for success navigating through the fog of this uncertainty. But bottom line is If I had one recommendation to give to any manager at any level in any company in any country, it would be be human first, a manager second.
0: Great insights. Stan Slap, if uh, our listeners wanted to dig a bit deeper into your world and the things you do, where would you send them?
2: Uh, Well, the website is slapcompany.com, S-L-A-P, company.com. Um, if you go on the website, uh, you can download uh, for free a uh, 44-page guide to managing during tough times. That'll help you. Um, the books are available wherever books are sold. Uh, um, and and because this is a Blanchard talk here, and we're very involved and, and very appreciative of that relationship, Let me also give my direct email, which I don't usually write on restaurant walls, but but it's stan at slapcompany.com. So if you uh, feel trapped and your desk appears to be melting and you wonder if a culture can really smell fear, or even if you're back at the offices, give me a call, guide you out through the cubicles like the first Matrix movie.
0: I love that. I love the visual too. That's a good one. So yeah, you'll... uh, so we're Neo in this, uh, this visual. So I oh, love yeah. that. So yeah. you're the, you're a Morpheus on the, on the cell phone that came in the package. I love that. So Stan, thank you so much. It has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining us on this edition of the Blanchard Leader Chat podcast. My pleasure. And thank you for joining us for today's podcast. If you enjoyed this interview and like to learn more and also help us grow the audience, please subscribe to the Leader Chat Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or wherever you're listening, and please share this with your friends. The best way you can help us grow, though, is feedback. As Ken Blanchard says, feedback is the breakfast of champions. So please write us a review if you haven't already. And by the way, this podcast is sponsored by the Ken Blanchard Companies. If you'd like to learn more, there's even a lot of free resources to better yourself and your organization. Go to KenBlanchard.com. You'll find all kinds of free tools and materials to help you and others grow. Thanks again to our guests for joining us today. For now, I have the pleasure of turning it over to Ken Blanchard for his thoughts on what we discussed. Here it is, your final minute with Ken Blanchard.
1: Chad, you hit a home run again, particularly getting Stan Slap on your program. Uh, he knows more about culture than I think anybody in the business. As he said, it's the most overused word probably, but most misunderstood. And I love the way he says, you got to understand there's a management culture, there's an employee culture, there's a customer culture. And he focuses on the employee culture, which is, he says, is an independent organization, which his purpose is to protect itself. And so how do you deal with a culture like that? Because what you want to do is make them a committed culture, committed to the vision and values and the direction that, that you want. Well, you got to communicate with him. you got to communicate with him. you got to communicate with them. Our son Scott took over as president of our company uh, in uh, January uh, 2020. And, and uh, it's uh, just amazing. Uh, every week he has uh, sent out a... Uh, kind of a newsletter transformational week uh, newsletter, to everybody in our company, and he told them when he took over is that my number one value is forthrightness, I want to constantly be able to tell you what I know what i don 't know, and what I wish i didn 't know and uh, I think people really ap- appreciate that uh, because uh, they the people in you know in cultures don 't don 't hate change, they just want to Make sure that they know where everything's going and where they might fit in and all. And I, I think one of the fabulous things in the end that he, that he says that what we need to be is a human first and a manager second. And so you need to realize that your culture could stop you dead in your tracks. So you got to reach out to them, you got to communicate to them, you got to realize that they are an independent organization. And so, wow, uh, what a fabulous session. Listen to this. Share this with your people. I think it's a very, very powerful thing. God bless.